welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me, and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, so you may be wondering why I'm releasing a bonus episode today, but I felt it was really important to get out some more information following the Panorama programme, the BBC Panorama programme, Private ADHD Clinics Exposed, which went out on Tuesday night here in the UK. You may have seen a lot of backlash on social media, lots of journalists and newspapers writing about it. The actual programme was trying to investigate the process of being diagnosed with ADHD. But the problem was that the journalist in question went undercover to have these ADHD assessments And it was actually a very biased investigation because he went undercover to the private um, assessment clinics and he was um, talking very sort of um, openly about being a BBC journalist for the NHS. So the NHS psychiatrist knew exactly what was going on and the private assessors didn't. Now, I'm not saying that the private assessments were um, perfect because they weren't and there was a lot of things that shouldn't have been done. However, what I do know is that he was diagnosed by two or three of those clinics with ADHD and the NHS one he wasn't. So all I know is this was a skewed, biased investigation which has rocked and unsettled the ADHD community even more than it was because we feel invalidated, we feel questioned, we feel judged. And that fear, shame and judgment has been there all our lives. And so now this program has exacerbated it even more for many, many people. I've received lots of messages. I've been speaking to people in the community, professionals, psychiatrists, therapists. Some of the questions that I was seeing on my page and online that people were worried and people were actually scared and fearful that um, maybe they are waiting for a diagnosis and it's not going to be done properly and maybe they're not going to get the diagnosis they deserve. But also the diagnosis that they've had is um, wondering, you know, whether it's whether it's done properly and actually sort of questioning their own diagnoses, which goes back to all the gaslighting that we have probably felt um, all our lives and maybe have had people not quite understanding us. And everyone is really, really disappointed by the way this has panned out. So I wanted to be able to offer you some help and maybe a bit of light at the end of the tunnel that your diagnosis, whether it's private or NHS, is valid and that you deserve answers. You deserve the help and the support that you've got. And you've not been imagining the symptoms and the traits and all the different coexisting conditions that come with ADHD. So I hope this episode today offers you a little bit of compassion and hope that waiting for a diagnosis is not in vain or that a diagnosis you may have just received is valid. So here's today's episode and I really do hope it is of help to you. 
Today we have Vicky George. Now Vicky is the ADHD nurse, you may know her from uh, social media, and Vicky is a clinical specialist nurse independent nurse prescriber and she is the founder of the ADHD nurse and I've been so looking forward to having you on the podcast Vicky because I think your wealth of knowledge is going to be so practical and so I think so supportive to anyone listening right now who is maybe waiting a diagnosis or has had a diagnosis and just wants more questions because unfortunately here in the UK we are lacking lots of resources and um, clinical support and I thought you know let's get you on and ask lots of questions and hopefully this will disseminate out and, and help lots of people so welcome to the podcast Vicky. Oh, thanks Kate thanks for having me. So we hear a lot um a lot of conversation about how to get the diagnosis and how and who can diagnose and very often we hear is a psychiatrist um or is specifically got to be a doctor but you are a clinical special specialist nurse and you can prescribe as well so maybe you could break it all down and the language and how you're able to help and, and who you help and um i guess what your specific sort of niche is as well yeah definitely um it's a huge well a really really common misconception actually about it being only a psychiatrist that can diagnose adhd um, and treat adhd although historically predominantly it would have been psychiatrists um but actually over sort of recent years well for quite some time now nurses um well i suppose the the kind of profession in general is kind of expanding and and there's a lot of nurse prescribers out there so obviously it's an additional qualification Mm -hmm. when somebody qualifies as a nurse they're not automatically a prescriber um so that was something that I did sort of later on in my training but that wouldn't automatically um enable somebody to prescribe ADHD medications obviously you prescribe within your competence and you know your area of practice So for me, obviously, the route that I went down in terms of working in ADHD, um, I was working as a mental health nurse, obviously, in mental health services within the NHS, um, ever since qualifying as a nurse, um, I don't know how long ago now, probably 10 plus years ago. Obviously, I've hopped around in the NHS doing different things, so lots of experience in different areas. But that in itself is helpful for what I do now, because it's not that I only know about ADHD, I know about lots of, you know, the coexisting conditions or or what we call kind of differential diagnosis as well. Um, similar to, I suppose, you know, mental health nursing, mm-hmm. we don't really, we didn't cover, I don't know if it's different now, but certainly when I was there, it's not something that they, they cover because it doesn't actually come under mental health. So although it's, you know, highly connected. So... I I think one of my frustrations, I can understand why the misconceptions are there, but one of my frustrations is, is the assumption that all consultant psychiatrists can diagnose ADHD and have that knowledge. Mm. And actually, it isn't always the case. It all depends on where they work. No different to a nurse, you know, where your expertise is, where your experience is, because you never start learning until you do the job anyway. Mm-hmm. But actually, there still seems to be this real, um, it's like a hierarchy of, you know, actually, no, it needs to be a doctor. But it's all about the individual's kind of ex- uh, expertise, really, their experience and, and their training that they've had as well. Because unless this is not mandatory training for ADHD in healthcare professionals. Um, obviously, if you work in ADHD, then the likelihood is you wouldn't be working there if you didn't have that, you know, the training. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 
something necessarily that is mandatory. Okay, so I mean, we're we're talking off the back of that very unfortunate BBC Panorama program that aired this week, and we were just you know discussing off air that we're both you know feeling the the ripples of it, and you know both of us on social media, lots of our clients, you know that we can't underestimate the damage that unfortunately that program has done. But I know there's a lot of confusion there as well. A lot of people who are are waiting for NHS diagnoses, um, perhaps have been on a waiting list, but have decided to go private. And what that programme has done is also highlighted that there was a pharmacist, there was a psychologist, um, and there was um, a psychiatrist who perhaps wasn't doing, you know, a rigorous amount of um, questioning before prescribing, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunately, you know, had this huge knock on effect of people feeling like their diagnoses maybe haven't been valid, they're not right, they've been rushed. And we're hearing so many stories of actually maybe their NHS diagnoses not being as rigorous as they thought they should be. But also on the flip side, how incredible many, many, many private diagnoses have been. You know, for mine, I was I was exhausted after mine. I think it was like a two and a half hour, you know, conversation interview. I had to provide emails, written work from different family members from my husband. Um, she asked me for school reports, all sorts of things. And I did not feel shortchanged. I just felt validated that I'd finally got this diagnosis. Um, what this program has done is caused uh, a cascade of doubt, fear, worry. And it's really plummeted a lot of people into sort of deep despair. And I, I really want to be able to use this conversation to help people and to um validate their experiences but also know that if they have had a diagnosis and perhaps it hasn't been with a specific site you know a psychiatrist that's okay and I want you to maybe tell us a little bit about how you're you're able to diagnose and who you work with and your approach and then obviously um I want to talk about medication as well and the titration of medication, because what I'm hearing a lot is that they'll have this diagnosis. And yes, it's incredibly sort of affirming and validating, but actually the titration and the prescription of the ADHD meds is falling short and people are feeling quite lost as well. So I know that's just lots of information, but maybe you can just start with how you're able to diagnose and what your process is. Sure. Um, so obviously, like I said, when I um, started working in the NHS ADHD service, there isn't any like recognised or like standard of training for ADHD. That's another issue. But there is, I, I would say, the most recognised is UCAN, um, so the UK Adult ADHD Network. Okay. They offer training for professionals who are working with. Um, so obviously, it's specifically around adults with ADHD. So. I was put on that training program, which I was obviously really grateful for, and it was fantastic. And it's run by a lot of the leading experts, um, mostly consultant psychiatrists, um, but mm-hmm. some psychologists as well. So that was great. But obviously, aside from that, it starts with a lot of you know shadowing as well, and just the same as you would in any normal job role. So um, following that training, I was able to start assessing, um, obviously under supervision for a while, and it's continued from there. Obviously, I do that with, you know, great confidence now. Um, And in terms of training, that's an ongoing thing. It's just continuing professional Mm -hmm. development, which I'm always accessing training in lots of different areas, not solely ADHD, but everything in general. Um, So... In terms of what I do, obviously I work with adults. Um, I actually, I say I work with adults as, um, sorry, since working in the private sector, I see 16 and upwards. 
And the reason I've done that rather than 18 and upwards, like it is in the NHS, is because there's a huge, there's gaps everywhere, we know, but there's a huge Mm -hmm. gap there from my experience in the NHS, because when somebody hits the age of 18, obviously they have to transition over into adult services, but there is no transition. So they literally just drop off that, you know, off off CAMS waiting list and they Mm -hmm. then have to start again. They don't, you know, start at the point they were at CAMS. So it doesn't make any sense. So there's a pocket of people that might get put on the waiting list when they're 16. They know they're going to be a two, three year wait Mm -hmm. in CAMS, but often they won't even accept the referral because by the time they actually get there, they would have been over 18. So this is just it just highlights the amount of broken systems there are. And that's why people are just, you know, falling through these gaps. And just to hear that is like incredulous that this is this this is the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it was really difficult for me, obviously being really compassionate and, you know, really caring about people and what I do. And I was the one who was having to triage those, you know, kind of referrals or people come into us saying, can we go on the waiting list now? Because by the time that um, they reach the top of the waiting list, they will be 18 anyway and having to say no. You know, I didn't have the the kind of um, power in my job role. I wasn't managing the service. I didn't have the power to change that. And it was, but that's part of my reason why I'm working privately now because of all the frustrations it caused and there was nothing I could do about it. So, um, so that's what I do now. So I say 16 and upwards, because to begin with, it was very much just me, plus um, kind of administration support. And my expertise is generally with adults. Um, Although, you know, seeing younger people, that kind of adolescence age, um, I feel just as confident with, so that's fine. But I stick to what I know, because that's where, you know, I can deliver the best service, basically. Mm -hmm. A good thing to talk about actually would be I get referrals um coming as self-referral. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to go via GP. Um, but I don't allow somebody to just book in. I look through that referral information and it, it is quite a lengthy referral form, which some people have got frustrated with. Some have been happy to complete it, but obviously it's not ADHD friendly. I've tried to as best as I can do sort of multiple choice and things, but I think off the back of this BBC panorama, it kind of shows why we have to gather all of this information Mm -hmm. um, because actually when we don't, that's when we can miss things. Um, So I I go through that referral information then, almost like a screening process, um, to look out for things that might be kind of out of my expertise or outside of my expertise and when actually maybe a consultant psychiatrist might be more suitable um and I suppose for example those situations is when somebody has a really complex mental health history and I'm not kind of thinking obviously I would say almost everybody that I see has some form of mental health difficulties they've got undiagnosed ADHD so Mm -hmm. it's inevitable I would say it's things like if somebody is on lithium for bipolar um, so we were talking kind of um, serious mental health problems. I wouldn't see those people. I would okay. straight away suggest you need to see a consultant psychiatrist that can manage both conditions. Obviously, it's hard from a referral form to pick up on all of these things. And we don't know the outcome until we've done the assessment either. Um, but I do try my hardest to kind of make sure I steer people in the right direction if they're not for me. Mm-hmm because that's important so you know different professionals have got different skill sets so I, I suppose it's kind of weighing that up if somebody is looking for an assessment and they're wanting to go private 
um, it's thinking about what it is they need, what else is going on as well, and who can provide, you know, the kind of most appropriate service for that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, listen, you know, I, there's going to be people listening here that haven't watched this programme. But yeah. the, what the programme did highlight is that there's obviously a huge need, there's a lack of resources, and there's certain clinics taking advantage. But the, the way it was reported was was very biased. And I would say, um, I would say the way he posed himself as undercover in certain situations and then not, you know, for the NHS was 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 totally wrong. But I think essentially what people want to know is, OK, do I need to go to a GP? Can I self-refer? Um, how am I going to be able to get a diagnosis? Because, again, what this programme sort of said, or they were diagnosing everyone. But what they didn't talk about was the fact that you're not going to seek out an ADHD diagnosis unless you're pretty desperate. It's not going to be like, oh, let's, you know, for, for fun, I've got on board one afternoon, let's try and get an ADHD diagnosis unless you're a BBC reporter. But if you are that desperate for help and support, you will actively go and seek out an ADHD diagnosis, which is why most people get it, because you've sort of bypassed quite a few um, routes, you know, avenues to get there. So someone comes to you and they are relatively run of the mill. You know, yes, like you say, there's going to be sort of undiagnosed mental health issues such as maybe anxiety, OCD, depression, sleep issues. Maybe there's some addiction or um, disordered eating. Are you are you happy to take people on that are able to because it's not just as we know, the ADHD is not just I can't focus, I can't tidy my room, I can't concentrate. That's sort of very surface level, but there's going to be lots of other um, things going on beneath that. Are you still happy to diagnose in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. I think because of my background, um, like I said at the beginning, my background in mental health services, when I first started working um, in ADHD, put me at a massive advantage. And actually, I remember talking about that at my interview. And that's, you know, kind of because my my fear was, obviously, there was the typical imposter syndrome anyway, going to that interview. But um, they were really um, keen to have me on board because of that ability to be able to rule out other things or look at other things. Because if you can't do that, then in my opinion, you shouldn't be assessing for ADHD. Um, just like it's just as important to kind of rule it out as it is in. Um, and although, yes, you know, like you just touched on, um, the percentage of people that go on to have a diagnosis of ADHD um, is is relatively high. And I think that's what alarms people. But it was no different in the NHS. Mm. And that's genuine. It was no different. Um, I've, I've really reflected on this recently, actually. But it's, yeah, obviously that, that side of things. Like, I wouldn't be able to do my job if I couldn't see people and feel confident in treating people that mm -hmm. also have coexisting conditions yeah going back to to the program what was it for you as a professional that's working on that side of things of, of diagnosing I mean, my side of things is sort of mostly post-diagnosis or women who are awaiting diagnosis and who um are just wanting to understand themselves better who are wanting to um, learn coping techniques and tools and learn how to thrive again um but because i don't work as in the diagnostic process mm. i'm interested to know what really what issues that you had with that program and how much it's bothered you because I you know as we said you know it's really sort of taken a toll on you what was it that you maybe would like to tell people to to help reassure them a little bit yeah I think it's it's just really misleading isn't it um massively but then I 
and initially before I actually watched it but I'd heard about it and obviously I read the the article about it um I will be completely honest um but also maintain professionalism there was actually a sense of kind of relief Mm-hmm. Um, because um, without going into too much detail, I have worked in a, another private practice very briefly, I'll add, and I can say that those things do go on, um, hence why I was there very briefly, and that's actually what led to me setting up as the ADHD nurse, um, so it was all kind of circumstantial really, and I just saw how I absolutely you know, didn't want to work, I, w- I wasn't willing to work in that way, I was quite horrified to be honest with you. Um, so I know that's not very reassuring, um, but what I can say is there are some amazing private practice practices out there. And even those you know, clinics that were exposed in the panorama, there will be clinicians, you know, in amongst the they're quite large clinics from my understanding. Mm. And there will be clinicians, you know, kind of that work for them that do do, you know, very thorough assessment and do really care about what they do. But unfortunately, when they're, you know, quite large services, and obviously, I don't know whether it's an issue with management and not, you know, kind of supervising these people and just desperately taking on the wrong staff, I don't know. Um, But it becomes, you know, I've always said this, it becomes quantity over quality. Mm. Um, And I know, you know, there might be, well, maybe initially it was all kind of well and good trying to see as many people as possible helping people but it's yeah it's it's a difficult one but so I've got real I've got really mixed feelings about it um my my fear um as somebody who runs a private practice was everybody's going to be kind of tarred with the same brush that works in private practice which is absolutely not the case um so that was obviously a worry and I think it it will just make so many people question their diagnosis, which they do anyway, <laughs> without yeah, that, and think that they've definitely. made it all up in their head. And totally, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hear that all the time. I have, yeah. you know, I have women that come to me and, and they say, "Well, I've had my diagnosis, but yeah. I don't believe it." And I was like, "Well, why don't you believe it?" Because yeah. they think, "Well, maybe I'm just over dramatizing and over exaggerating. Maybe I kind of like." went into too much detail about something maybe I was just having a bad day and but if you think that's pretty much what we've done our whole lives you know we've constantly said oh you know I just need to try this or just work harder or do things differently and then it'll be better or I just need to do something I just need to push more and actually when we I do I honestly believe that a diagnosis is like a process that you have to um go through because there's so much to um there's so much to kind of like unpack and there's lots of layers and lots of conditioning and lots of things and stories and beliefs that we kind of have to rework. Um, so it's not just this like black and white, here's your diagnosis, move on with life. Um, and, and coming on to that, very often what happens is, is it is kind of like after the two or three hour um, assessment, they do say, you know, well, I can tell you that you've been diagnosed with combined type or, you know, hyperactivity and, or, or, you know, ADHD with hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of sit there and you're a bit stunned and it's like, wow. And then, then they talk about medication, but actually all I'm, I'm just speaking personally is that I was just thinking, oh my God, my life is now making sense. And I could hear the psychiatrist saying, you could try this and you could try that. And in 30 days, come back to me. And, da, da, da. and it was all just like waffle. And I just, I didn't. Yeah. And then that, that was it. The, the conversation was over. But now, and then I have women who just don't go on the medication because 
there's so much stigma and they're so worried and they don't know what to do and is it going to change them in this capacity and is it going to stop me from being creative and imaginative and they get the diagnosis but then the hurdle the next hurdle is do I or don't I go on the medication yeah and I know you know from experience and lots of other people is that medication is very personal but what I find really hard to swallow really hard so just so to speak pill to swallow is that it's it, this titration thing and, and people are just left and they just, here's the medication, try it and it doesn't agree with them. And then they have to pay again to speak to someone or they don't know how to tweak it. And and why is, why is this still not right? Like, why are we being left in the dark about medication? Why is there not enough support there? Especially when the medication is probably just as big a taboo as the actual diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's massive, isn't it? And it is, it's really difficult, obviously, for somebody that, you know, works, um, you know, kind of in that process and trying to find that right balance. Um, One of the things that we started doing a while ago, which I'm still kind of um, in an hour and over, to be honest with you, was because you, it depends on the individual, but it's trying to, when people are paying privately, you have all these different questions that pop up in your head. Is it fair to do that? Is it because it's an additional appointment to then talk about medication? Mm-hmm. But we we did decide quite a while ago that we were separating that from the diagnostic assessment because okay. it was so important and, and it works really well. But I, I do also now, I've started to see it, back to let's just see what the individual needs because there's some people that have already had that in their head and then would feel I I can gauge with that person that they're ready for that they've they've already looked at it and they you know in their minds they've already started and trialed it (laughs) so um it would feel really unfair to to kind of then say right okay well come back you know go away have a think about it come back in a couple of weeks then we'll think about getting you started. Mm. But then there's other people that I can tell by the end of the assessment that I'm like, there's absolutely no way that they are going, they're not going to absorb that information. And it's so important. And not just information of right, here you go, this is what I'm going to prescribe you. But what is that medication even doing? Like, that's really important to me, like to actually explain, rather than just here you go, this is what it's called, take it. I, I like people to know what it's actually doing to them, how and yeah. um, put it in the context of, ADHD and why that's prescribed and and then also talking about different scenarios of you know what they can actually expect because everybody responds differently to medication as we know so I kind of set them up of this might happen or that might happen or that might happen and we can deal with either you know situation um but I do know you know like you were saying so I hear this all the time people getting in contact um that might have had like a bad experience elsewhere that they are quite literally given a prescription and sent on their way. And sometimes like maybe a 10 minute phone call or even email, I think, contact for titration, which is insane because there's so many questions that it raises. And actually some people kind of take it in their stride um, and they're quite happy to, you know, they feel quite good on the medication and they, but other people, they need a lot of reassurance. They have a lot of questions. Mm. Um, that they should be able to just reach out and get those questions answered when they've been prescribed a new medication. So if you're listening to today's podcast and you're finding it really helpful, I would love it if you could jump onto wherever you're listening to the episode and leave a review, a rating. This really helps with other people like yourself find the podcast. Perhaps they are just on the beginning of their journey 
and are desperate for help and resources. And this podcast can really help with that. And if you are looking for further support, please do head to my website, which is adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. On there, I have lots of workshops, resources, information. It's both paid for and for free. My aim is to really help you and guide you on this journey and allow you to access whatever you can find that will help you where you are right now. So that's adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. Now back to today's episode. Why do you think there is this huge taboo and stigma with with ADHD medication? Why are people so um, afraid to talk about it and admit that they, you know, that they need this medication? Yeah, I think um, the stigma stems from um, kind of history, really, in terms of ADHD medications. And um, it was previously believed that they were addictive because of the nature of them. Um, but that's it doesn't make it I get asked that question, actually, from, um, you know, patients that have been diagnosed and starting treatment. Will I get addicted to it? Is it addictive? And straight away, I'm like, no, it's not. There are, um, you know, people out there, I'm sure, that don't have ADHD and maybe have a family member that does and misuse the medication or try and access the medications to misuse them. But obviously their response to medication will be very different to somebody who actually has ADHD mm. because of brain chemistry. We know that. So, and the other thing is that like, obviously, um, you know, in adults generally, it should be long acting stimulants that are prescribed. So there is no kind of, there's no cause for concern in terms of addiction at all. They're slow acting. I mean, there's no street drugs that are slow acting. <laughs> That's why they're addictive. So it doesn't, it doesn't actually make sense. So, and like thinking about one of the um, training programs around treatment that I attended and listening to, it's quite a while ago, listening to consultants talking about people with substance misuse history, because again, really common for us to see people in those scenarios and um, I've kind of known some consultants to be really reluctant to prescribe anything for them, especially not stimulants. But actually the advice was, and it was very much like, you know, evidence based as well, that we would go with a long acting stimulant, mainly Concerta and Alvance rather than other brands of Mifalphenidate. And obviously Alvance is the only licensed brand in the UK um, for Lizdex. There, there is reasoning behind that, the pharmacology side of it, which I won't go down that route. But for them to say that and back that up with it's very, very evidence based. This goes to show that it's not actually likely to cause any further issues with addictions. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the crazy thing is, is that we're starting to recognise now how much more prevalent ADHD is, you know, within the criminal um, system. We know people with addiction, with all sorts of behavioural issues that maybe we need to start looking at ADHD. And the, like you say, it's the brain chemistry. And so we've got access to medication that could potentially help and again we all know this is personal and there's some people that just really just needed that diagnosis they needed that diagnosis and the medication for them is sort of secondary because they're sort of managing life and they've come they've got loopholes and they've got some scaffolding but then something something could potentially happen and all of a sudden those loopholes and strategies and scaffolding isn't isn't working and then that's when the medication can really help I don't like to talk about being pro-medication or not you know um you know anti-medication I want to be sort of pro-choice and know that it's so personal for everybody but I don't want people to be put off medication 
because it can be life-changing, can be life-saving, especially if there is sort of addiction there, binge eating, you know, dependence on um, on drugs, um, alcohol, anything like that. And that's when we start seeing how powerful, you know, leaning towards the medication side can actually be. Um, it's interesting that you say that you can see, you can sense when they come to you and they are like already, you know, they could have been sitting on this, this curiosity about ADHD for years. And then finally they, you know, they get a, a, an appointment that potentially could have been waiting for for six months. And they've done all the research because typical ADHD, they would have gone down lots of rabbit holes and, and research. And then they come to you and it's kind of like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for this medication. Yeah. Are you, how do you then help people moving forwards? Because very often it's like, right, you've got ADHD and this has been here all your life and you're going to be living with this. How do we then go through that titration process of tweaking medication as we get older, when women are going through menopause, um, when things change and life circumstances change. What what advice do you have for people who are wondering about, oh my God, I'm going to be on medication all my life. Like, how do I do this? Yeah, um, it's a really difficult question to answer, Kate, purely because of the issue with services. So obviously it totally depends on that person and where they were diagnosed, where they were prescribed their treatment, um, because that, again, is it's another huge issue. People that um, that get in contact quite often are saying, um, oh, you know, I've been prescribed, you know, whatever it is, usually a stimulant for 10 years. Nobody's reviewed it. I can't go and see my previous practitioner because they're no longer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the or, or I if I go down the NHS route, I have to wait. I mean, it's seven and a half years in Gloucestershire right now. Um, so obviously when I uh, this is, you know, kind of another subject, really. But what I, I I don't know if I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and start talking about something else. But no, but no I'm interested to know what you were going to say. Well, well, it, it's difficult um, because, again, it's a, quite a recent decision and not, nothing to do with the panorama. But going back about two weeks ago, I made the decision not to see people that have been diagnosed elsewhere. Um, actually, for issues that the panorama have kind of exposed, which is a real shame because I, but I'd already felt that way. And it isn't because every single person that comes through doesn't have a good quality assessment. But there have been some issues where I don't know enough about that person to make those prescribing decisions. When I see somebody for a full assessment, I know them because I have to literally go through absolutely everything. And I've spent that time to get to know them. Um, and it feels, you know, more natural and, and comfortable to do that. Um, even for them, to be honest with you, it's like continuity of care as well, isn't it? Um, it is really difficult. Um, it does raise issues. But then I also, um, even since then, say no, I, I still get those kind of inquiries and feel so guilty for these people because it's not their fault it's not through any fault of their own um so it is it is tricky so in terms of my processes that i've got in place and and actually this is all off the back of nice guidelines as well an annual review should take place um when somebody is prescribed medications for adhd um if somebody's gone down the nhs route i can only speak for gloucestershire because i know services varied across the country but that annual review the GP was responsible for well still is responsible for doing which makes no sense because the GP so they'll do blood pressure checks that's it um it might just say you're still feeling okay and that's it but that's not a proper review Mm. um but the ADHD NHS service don't have the resources to do those reviews either so people are literally left I don't think those reviews even take place to be honest with you and just because it's the time and resources isn't it the GPs as well 
Um, so, but I, I do have that process in place and I did wonder how it would go. Um, obviously when I first said, so I've been going for a couple of years now. So obviously I've been doing annual reviews from people that I saw, um, when I first started out as the ADHD nurse, um, and, um, people really value it, but then I do have people that kind of fall off the radar and are difficult to get hold of, which is going to happen. Obviously it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Um, but I, I always encourage people to kind of reach out in the meantime. I'm there. I don't discharge them. They stay with me mm. um, unless, you know, they stop medication or they have, I don't know, some people were already on the NHS waiting list and they choose to stay on there um, because they want to be fully transferred over to NHS longer term. Um, but generally, most people that I've diagnosed and started on treatment, they've been coming back to see me for that annual review and contact in between time. Yeah. So, I mean, is that what you'd call shared care then with regards to moving the medication um, over to the GP? But then the problem is the GP yeah. isn't as knowledgeable about this medication unless they've got a vested interest in yeah. learning more about ADHD and the yeah. medication. So it kind of feels like, yes, it's great through the NHS, you're able to, to get the medication, but are you getting the right, most up-to-date expertise yeah. through the GP? No. And I, I guess, you know, somebody went to their GP um, that was under shared care um, and asked, you know, to kind of review the medication and make any changes. I'd be very surprised. It's very rare for a GP to say, yeah, that's fine. We'll we'll try something else. It just wouldn't happen. I mean, I'm, I'm sure on you know rare occasions it does happen when you've got a GP that's confident and has done some training. Maybe I don't know, but it's very, very rare for that to happen. So um, so obviously for me, I complete that review. I write to the GP to give them an update um, and also at that point um, so most people are, are continuing with what they were already prescribed and quite happy with that so we don't make changes but others where changes have been needed when it's been small tweaks I've actually been able to write to the GP and say can you just decrease increase the dose or add this and they've been happy to because I've already got that shared care agreement in place um, I'm making it sound like it's really straightforward because it's, de it's definitely not. Um, obviously, there are GPs that decline shared care as well. Mm. Um, but I have found you know, that was obviously, again, one of my biggest concerns when I set up privately because there was already issues within the NHS with shared care. And I had quite a thorough understanding of it. So I came up with my own kind of shared care um guidelines protocol for me and gps um and whether they accept that is up to them but it's just so that they know what i'm asking them to do and all i'm asking them to do is prescribe that medication once that person's stabilized and i i make it very clear to them that they don't have to take any other responsibility for that medication and they can come to me and so can the patient if they have problems and that's how it should be it shouldn't be complicated um it's Do you know just... what it is? I feel so much that as much good the GP as the GPs do, yeah. they it's they are almost like the gatekeeper and that kind of yeah. power that they have. And so many yeah. people are so terrified that of that initial conversation. Yeah. Or oh, what happens if they say no? What happens if they question me? What happens if I've got to start proving myself all over again? And then that all that kind of worry and anxiety comes back as maybe I don't have ADHD. Maybe maybe I'm making a big deal about nothing. And that doesn't help the shame and the fear and this worry about judgment comes from so many 
you know, uneducated, ignorant people anyway. We don't, we want to know that we're going to be supported by, you know, a GP and medical professionals. And that's why it makes me so sad that this, you know, with ADHD and women especially, that it, it definitely feels like we're on the back foot, that we're not, we, we're fighting for support, we're fighting to be heard. And um, as much as I hope this podcast helps and speaking to you and, and all of that, what, I guess, what what would you like to see? You know, you have experience of working in NHS for years, you're now in private practice. What would you, you know, as a professional in the, in the sector, love to see in an ideal world sort of moving forwards with ADHD, you know, diagnostics and titration and support? In an ideal world, I suppose, in terms of NHS, really, because that's where, I mean, there's issues everywhere, but even private services are overwhelmed because obviously people can't get seen in the NHS. So actually, you know, there's that balance is kind of, it's changing, isn't it? So I, I think, obviously, some people opt to go private anyway. They don't want to go down the NHS route if they've got those resources that, and that's their preference. But actually, I think it's become about firefighting everywhere now um sadly but in terms of I suppose NHS services um again I don't know about other counties massively but I know in Gloucestershire the resources are just minimal and I don't and like it's really obvious to me and has been for a long time since I was working in the NHS that it's it's all about money isn't it and where they put that money Mm. if they were to invest money in services for ADHD autism then actually that would that would take a huge amount of pressure off the GPs to deal with the the kind of day-to-day stuff that can be dealt with in a GP surgery Mm. um because actually the phone calls that GP surgeries must get you know in terms of ADHD shared care I feel guilty when I'm quite often saying oh you know you may need to contact the GP surgery and the pressure that they're under. So I just, I, I don't know, I just never can get my head around why it doesn't make sense to put the money there so they can employ more nurses to clear the backlog and you know have a multidisciplinary team. And, and I think it would even take the pressure off mental health services. I don't mm. think, I definitely know it would, like massively. So it, it would just have a knock-on effect, positive effect everywhere. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know, it doesn't make sense why they're not doing that. Yeah, because to be able to have to access people like yourself, more people like with specialist interests and able mm-hmm. to um, to be a prescriber, like you say, you know, what, what, what we're hearing in the UK now is that pharmacists, you know, in, in the next few months are going to be able to be prescribing a lot of medication that GPs um, would normally prescribe and to just take mm-hmm. the pressure off. And so I guess the situation is until more people are trained and there's mm-hmm. more people training, you know, we've mm-hmm. almost to wait for the next the influx of, of trained, you know, professionals to come mm. out, start relieving the load a little bit. And like you say, you know, seven year wait, I mean, that is just beyond, yeah. you know, anything, no wonder people are desperate and finding any way they can, because again, if we sort of put the medication aside, that diagnosis on its own, I genuinely believe is life-changing because it is that final affirmation of you're not broken you're not a failure. There's not something wrong with you. And um, there's a brain difference, there's a neurological situation going on, condition going on. And you can access coaching, you can access, you know, therapy, you can read books, you can listen to podcasts, you are much more empowered when you have that official diagnosis. And I have a lot of people who actually say to me, I'm probably got ADHD, but I'm not that bothered. But I would say most of the people would feel more confident 
kind of talking about it and being quite open about it and sharing their experience when they say, you know what, I've had the diagnosis and um, now I understand why I work like I do and um, live the way I do and sleep the way I do and eat the way I do and take so much of that pressure from themselves. And that self-compassion alone is, is very, um, is very, very powerful. So I, I hope this this conversation has been helpful. I know we're sort of just being quite um, open about the bleakness of the situation, but it's also um, promising to hear, you know, of, of your, you know, situation that um, it's okay. People can come to you and people can get diagnoses from um, mm -hmm. people like yourself. So I, I hope that um, maybe anyone listening now and um, is thinking, you know, what well, I only have to see a psychiatrist. It kind of opens it up um, to people like yourself. Um, so can you tell people how they can work with you, you know, how they can contact you? Have you got a waiting list? Um, at the moment, I think it is around about, we don't hold a waiting list, but where we're booking into, I think is the end of June. So it's approximately six, seven weeks. What date are we on now? About, I think it's probably about six weeks at the moment. Um, okay. which is much better than seven and a half years so <laughs> mm. um yeah so in terms of how people usually get in contact um but even just taking a look at my website because I think it's important to kind of get a feel of who you're seeing what I do what I offer and, and making that decision rather than I think um obviously I, I encourage people to get in touch through email which is um the, the email address is on the website there's also a screening um, tool on the website that would ping me a notification if somebody wanted to complete that and they weren't sure. Um, sometimes it's just a good starting point. Mm. Um, and what I don't like people to, because sometimes I get people that will get in contact and you can kind of hear in the tone of, of their voice, you know, even in the email that they're just not sure. They just want a bit more information. Um, it's a big commitment when you go privately. So, um, and there's usually lots of questions, which I encourage people to ask. And there's no pressure from me um, at all. Um, I, I usually suggest in scenarios like that, complete the referral form because and we, we would send that out at that point. That's not available on the website um, once somebody has got in touch because then I can have a look, it's almost screening that information then and going back to that person and saying, to me, it sounds like it's worth it or actually maybe you should try going down this route first um, because quite often people just aren't sure. And obviously there's lots of um, conditions that can cause symptoms that can look like ADHD, like we know. And I think that's where what causes the uncertainty for people sometimes. Do you mind just, I know we're, we're about to close, yeah. but when you just say that, what what would you, what's sort of a bit of a red flag for you that you think perhaps could be a confusion with ADHD? Um, I think definitely one of the things that crops up quite often is age of onset, um, because, um, and just this, just a random example, because um, it's a question I ask on the referral form, and, and it's a question that's difficult for people to ask, uh, answer as well because especially when working with adults, but then sometimes I will have somebody that will say, um, you know, over the last couple of years, um, and then I take into consideration like hormones, you know, whether they're male or female, and is that in, you know, any correlation in terms of hormonal changes? Um, it is difficult from the referral form though, um, but also um, when something is more episodic rather than consistent, 
and only happening in certain situations and it's all very mental health based rather than I think it's hard to describe I think when when you're doing it day in day out and you've got that experience sort of looking over those things you almost get a sense for it the minute you read it yeah um rather than very like there's there's no kind of um one size fits all I'm not one for kind of tick box criteria yeah going with my gut instinct a lot of the time and being open with people about that I think that's really important as well, because as we know, there's, you know, a spectrum of how it shows up. It shows up so differently in different people. Um, You know, it could be a lot, you know, ADHD can show up so differently that I sometimes think, oh, my goodness, how is this even like considered like one thing? I mean, I've said it before, but I do believe that maybe in the future, instead of it being ADHD, and autism or both together there's some form of like neurodivergent spectrum that we're able to um relate to because if we don't tick certain boxes we kind of think well maybe i don't have it and then what is it and then we're just sort of left in the dark but if we're then able to accept that there is a there's neurodivergence going on and we can um, access different support for, for things that sort of are really um, debilitating that you know whether it's anxiety or whether it's sleep issues or addiction like we say but we can just see it sometimes in just like skin picking and nail biting and um ocd and, and things like that and so yeah i just i would hope to see some form of real acknowledgement of the spectrum and how it shows up differently and um again you know with women as well of where we're just about we're just about managing and then perimenopause comes in and our estrogen levels start plummeting and that's when you know things start really kind of like showing showing up um so yeah it's it's very complex and multi-layered and um it's great to hear that you've got um a real eye for that because i think that's really important yeah definitely well vicky thank you so much for for your time and for answering all the questions and i really um i really do hope that this episode has has been helpful and um i'm sure people will probably be in touch i'm going to put all your details on the on the show notes thanks kate it's been really lovely talking to you it's been a long time coming actually since i started following you so i really appreciate it oh thank you vicky Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it has helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women, and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible, and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.